Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody almost all right? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> That's good. Well, I'm glad that you're here, even if you're not glad you're here, Ryan. Anyway, so um, we're going to be jumping into a, a large section of Scripture today, Genesis 42 through 45. And the story that we're looking at um, echoes with themes of forgiveness and reconciliation and the unwavering hand of God, which we'll be talking about uh, through the lens of God's plan, uh, which is what the message is titled today. So we're going to start, and we're going we're gonna to deal with this through um, the first lens, is the, the lens of forgiveness. And I've titled the, the first section of this, Forgiveness, a Costly Choice, because um, all things in life come with costs. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, we like to say this as Americans, that freedom comes at a cost, right? There is a cost to freedom. Uh, there is a cost to forgiveness as well. And the cost to forgiveness has never been higher than what we see in our Savior, in Jesus, as he dies this excruciatingly uh, painful death on a cross, all so that we might walk in forgiveness and life. Um, but for us, who don't have to go to a literal cross uh, necessarily, uh, forgiveness still comes at, at a cost, and we're going to see this through the life of uh, Joseph today. So Genesis 42 unfolds uh, again uh, against this backdrop of a famine that has gripped the, the world. The scripture says the entire world, and what we understand that to mean is the direct uh, associations with Egypt. That's why the entire world came to Egypt. We do not have some delusion that the people on the other side of the planet came over uh, to Egypt. So there was a famine in all of the world and people, uh, people needed help so they, they went to Egypt and uh, we know the story already that Joseph was put there for a reason. Unbeknownst to uh, Joseph's brothers uh, and Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, uh, they are going to meet up again with their brother in these, in these chapters. Um, uh, they betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. I'm just kind of recapping this for those of you who don't know the story or those of you who weren't here. And so they're going to re... Uh, you know, they're going to come together with their brother again, who they sold into slavery. And in this case, he has, uh, he has fulfilled the dreams that he told them about that caused them to uh, sell him into the hands of uh, slave traders was actually the dreams have come true. Right, and so Jacob or Joseph is in this high position of power in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And when he encounters his brothers, he recognizes them. But the scripture says something along the lines of he disguises himself so that they fail to recognize him. Uh, maybe it was the weird stuff that he's wearing. I don't know. But in the story, we find Joseph wrestling with his past. Uh, while navigating the plan in the present, right? Whatever it is that's going on, he's trying to work this out. He's trying to be obedient to God. He is, so far, he's been faithful to this, not only the, the commands and the call that have been placed on his life, but also in, uh, in being a, a good neighbor. He's helped, uh, uh, he was faithful to Potiphar. He was faithful to the fellow inmates that he had uh, found himself next to in prison. And so, 
uh, he is, he's walking out this journey, he's trying to be faithful to God, but he decides in the midst of this moment to test his brother's integrity. And I think by a show of hands, every one of us would say, I would want to test my brother's integrity that came back to me after they just sold me into slavery. Okay, that's kind of a big deal, right? And so he, he goes and he tests their integrity and he presents them with uh, a seemingly ordinary challenge, uh, but it carries this extreme weight, this profound weight. He accuses them uh, of being spies and he detains them. Now, that's fun. You come to the land. You're probably, you're probably living with the guilt of, of uh, making your young brother disappear. You're dealing with all this stuff. You're in the midst of a famine. You need food. You're going there because your dad said, wake up, idiots. Go get some food. And now you're being blamed to be some sort of a spy in the land. Now, when he accuses them of being spies, he detains them, and then he keeps Simeon, one of their brothers, in custody, and he instructs them to do something. He instructs them to go back to their homeland, back where his father is, and to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin. Now, do you know the significance of Benjamin? Benjamin is the only other brother from Rachel, okay? So, so this is really important to Joseph and vitally important to Jacob. And so he kind of knows what the cost is here, okay? He knows what he's asking of them. Um, this is a big deal when you think about this. And I'm going to tie all this in in just a second. So he, he asked them to bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin, and all of this to prove their honesty, right? Let's see if you guys are, are, are not full of it, right? So what we're witnessing here, though, is Joseph's complex emotions, and they're all at play. Uh, on one hand, his actions are driven by a desire to assess whether his brothers have undergone any kind of transformation. I mean, they did betray him, and that's a problem. On the other hand, I think we see two different things. We, we see his heart aching with a mix of longing for his family, but also, believe it or not, I think that there is clear resentment inside of Joseph's life. Remember, it's the same Joseph that says, what you plan for evil, which we're going to see in just a bit, what you plan for evil, God planned for good. It's that same Joseph that actually concocts this elaborate test for his brothers. And if you read the text, he is not kind with his brothers. He's very abrasive with his brothers. Now, here's the, here's the way I think we paint this picture. We paint this picture that if you trust God and you believe that God is in control, you'll never waver. You'll always be like, Psh, I got this. God's on my side. He's got my back. No, it's just simply not the case. There are times where we trust God and we're going, I don't trust anybody else and I'm going to make them prove themselves. Or, I trust God, but I don't see how it's going to come out, and so we have all kinds of weird ideas in our head. It's not always as pristine, I would say, as we make this out to be, right? The point is that even this profound conclusion of Joseph's, that God has been working all things for good, is possibly, if not probably, a conclusion that he arrived at through turmoil, Okay? He's arrived at this idea of what you intended for evil, God planned for good. I don't think that's the way he lived his life. 
As a matter of fact, we can prove it by the, by the sheer pain that he endured in Egypt, so much so that when he had, uh, when he had his two sons, one of whom he names to, to uh, kind of communicate this idea, God has caused me to forget the land of my father. Do you know why God caused him to forget the land of his father? Because he needed to forget it. It's painful. How many of you have things in your past that you just absolutely choose to put behind you? You have to forget them because they're, they're too painful, right? All of us have these things in our life. And guess what? That's not ungodly, okay? Joseph needed this. He needed to put this stuff away. And I am sure that the level of pain that this was causing was unbelievable. Remember, we're dealing with at least 15 years of being gone. And in that 15 years of being gone, you have your father who is aging already going to the point where, who knows, is my father alive? Is my brother alive? What has happened to my family? So you have all of this. So, so the conclusion that Joseph reaches, again, is is a great conclusion, but it's most likely uh, arrived at through turmoil. We have to be careful not to paint the biblical stories through a rose-colored glass. Anybody who's familiar with that phrase should know what I mean. But it, it, it just kind of translates as seeing only good and therefore making stories altogether unrealistic. How many of you have ever read the Bible and you thought, that just doesn't seem real? It doesn't seem real because what we read in the Bible, as many popular preachers have said over time, what we read is the highlight reel of this grand story. And you know how awesome movies are? You know how awesome the highlight reel of something is? It's amazing. You watch it and you're like, man, I felt all the range of emotions. It seems cool. I'm rallying. I'm excited. We read that when we get to the Bible. And then when we stop and think about it, we go, gosh, how much did Joseph think that life sucked? You ever wonder that? I think he thought life was awful, right? So, so he's pushing through this. And if we're not careful, again, we read the Bible through this weird rose-colored lens, and we think that this is just fairy tale stuff. So we have Joseph. He's dealing with his reintroduction to his brothers, and he's got a complex array of emotions. But we also have the brothers here. And in their distress and confusion, uh, they draw a connection between their current predicament and the past. So let's say you don't relate to Joseph. Most of us probably shouldn't relate to Joseph. You know, perfectly innocent, just accused by everybody. We're the people on the good side. We're most likely the brothers, okay? We're all a bunch of dirtbags, right? And so in their distress and confusion, they see the connection between the current situation they're in, being tested by Joseph, who they don't know right now, um, and the connection between that and their past. In their dialogue, they actually, this is a dialogue to themselves, they reveal that their guilt and their sense of responsibility uh, because of their past actions. Like, this is all happening because we were idiots, okay? How many of you have ever felt that? Yeah, yeah. Everybody looked down when they raised their hands that time. They're like, forget you. Anyway, right? So, so you look at your past actions, you have this regret, and, and, and you, you recognize, you see this connection. So they discuss this amongst themselves, and their perspective highlights a concept that we have to deal with, which is the concept of divine retribution, or the belief that misfortune is directly linked to past wrongdoings. 
okay? And some worldviews talk about karma, some talk about eye for an eye, although those aren't exactly the same concepts. Uh, In Joseph's testing and his brother's interpretation of events, we actually see the interplay between God's providence and human choices, and Joseph's plan to test his brothers ultimately serves as a catalyst for their transformation. And then the eventual healing that occurs through the family. But the brothers' understanding of repayment underscores a conviction model. And we need to think about this. It's a conviction that actions and consequences, all uh, actions have consequences, which is a concept deeply rooted in the Bible. How many of you know that your actions do have consequences? I just want to take a second to talk about what, where grace plays into this. So the scripture says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. People reap what they sow. Okay? People reap what they sow. By the way, that's a New Testament reiteration of an Old Testament principle. So, so it's not like it disappeared when Jesus came on the scene. You are going to reap what you sow. Okay? That's a fact of life. here's where grace comes in, and here's where I think we need to gain a better perspective according to what the Bible says. So if you live your life in a wicked and hellish sort of way, and the only result would be that you reaping what you sow means that you get a bunch of crap back in life, okay? Maybe you sold your brothers into slavery. Maybe you did something horrible to other people. And you're looking down the barrel of, of... negative consequences of this. When God comes in and says, I will show you grace, in other words, I will, I will mitigate those consequences. I will actually make it so you can walk in forgiveness, that you can walk in new life, and that you won't ultimately pay the penalty for the things that you've done. Now, where I'm going with this is actually more on the ultimate sense. If you've hurt somebody, you may never have that relationship again. Did you know that? That's the truth. There are many people in my life that have hurt me, and it has ruined relationships. It has ruined that, and it's true of me to them as well, right? It's like, I'm not Joseph here, okay? So so there is a real play out of that, but there's also this beauty that none of us will face death and damnation because of our sin. Did you know this? You should be hooting and hollering and saying amen because it's a big kind of selling point of Christianity, (laughs) right? Right? You, You don't have to pay for all of the atrocious sins that you have done. Now, you might look at that and say, how is this not a contradiction? If you reap what you sow and I reaped sin, why do I not, and I sowed sin, why do I not reap damnation? You do not reap damnation because you have been offered grace. But let's get this clear on what you've been offered. You've been offered a new seed to sow. And here's the new seed that you get to sow. It's called repentance. Okay? That's the new seed. Now, some people look at that and say, no, 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 Nathan. If I have to sow a new seed to get something, it's works. I am working to get something. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of what works are in the Bible. God's grace is to afford you the ability to repent. God's grace is to afford you the the opportunity in any way, shape, or form to be sorry for what you've done, to confess that to him, and allow him to turn it around. Did you know that? That is grace. And in that grace, much is expected of us. That's why the Bible says confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. 
and you will be saved. Well, that sounds like a whole lot of work. I've got to do some confessing, and I've got to do some believing. You still have a misunderstanding of works if you think that that is what we're talking about. Um, You might look at the Bible and say, but the Bible also says that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Yes, that's where your works come in. Have you repented? Have you cast your, your burdens on God and said, I'm sorry for what I've done? Great, mercy, it's all there. But in light of that, what are you called to do? Stop being an idiot, <laughs> right? So look at the person next to you and say, stop being an idiot. It's the only time, husbands, you're allowed to say that to your wife and get away with it, okay? Anyway, so the idea here is, the idea here is that there is a concept of, of actions and consequences. But when we talk about grace, what we have been given is an affordance to repent. And that affordance is grace, It is not grace to just wash over it and say, no big deal. So you can go back and live like a moron. No, that's not what this is, right? So Joseph's brothers are actually put through this test, if you will. And I think we as Christians are done uh, done the same way. I think God is doing this with us. Joseph's attention to test his brothers reflects this complex journey, 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 (laughs) journey toward forgiveness and reconciliation. Yes, I say funny words at times, right? While the brother's perspective of repayment, I think actually highlights their understanding of a a divine narrative, an interplay that's calling them to something. The New Testament amplifies these themes of forgiveness and reconciliation and God's wisdom, God's plan. Um, And it calls us to the same action. So for example, Colossians 3.13 says, we're admonished to this, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Isn't that cool? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How many of you think that that's steep though? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Remember, he hung on a cross and says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And you guys are like, listen, I'll forgive her, I'll forgive him, if they fix everything they've ever done wrong. It's funny, Jesus didn't ask you that. Now, Jesus is expecting you to stop being that way. But that's an affordance of grace to call you to repentance to call you to this. So it's really important, right? But for us, we're to bear with each other and forgive one another. And the level of forgiveness that we're called to is as the Lord forgave you. Gulp, right? Because why? Forgiveness is a costly choice. Sometimes it includes the idea that you can't, you, you just don't get to prove your point. You just don't get to win the argument. You just have to forgive. You've won. Just let it go, right? Let it go. This is hard. C.S. Lewis rightly said, he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. I've quoted this a thousand times, right? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. One of the great hindrances to forgiveness or us walking in forgiveness is because we actually don't think we are that bad. I hate to break it to you. But we actually think, you know what? I mean, I know that guy's bad but I'm pretty good. I know I do some things wrong, but I'm still pretty good. No, you're a dirtbag. You're like, I don't like that, Nathan. That just doesn't sound lovely. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) It's true, right? 
We all sin and we all fall short. Now, this doesn't mean we have to come up with some absurd, hyper-reformed idea of walking around, beating ourselves on the back and telling us how much of a wretched piece of nothing we are. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we have to acknowledge, I've sinned, I fall short. Guess what? I sin and fall short. Not, not past tense, right? Ask anybody in my life, they know, right? I sin, I fall short, I come back to the table, I try to do this repeatedly. Dylan gave a great, uh, a great devotional this morning in which he talked about the idea of coming back to repentance, a life that is lived in repentance versus a life that is lived in lawlessness, right? This is what we're called to. So we need to let this truth resonate deeply within us, and it should move us to, um, to a life that is modeled, or a life that is uh, imaged by radical forgiveness to those around us. So what I would love for you to do today is I would love for you to think through, and I'll, I'll, give, a bit of, um, I'll give a bit of information here in just a second to help you with this, but I would, I would recommend or I would encourage you to write out a list of the people that you desperately need to forgive, and I mean in a radical fashion. People that have hurt you deeply, not the person that cut you off in traffic. You don't need to forgive them. You just need to calm the heck down, right? And I'm telling myself this, okay, right? <laughs> Shut up all those who have driven with me. Anyway, okay, right? So, so, so the, the point is, I'm talking about those who have deeply wounded you, and I want you to, I want you to think about what it means to uh, extend radical forgiveness. Now, I want to talk to you about how you might do that. That does not mean... I radically forgive you for hurting my family or hurting me in a deep, profound way. Let's go grab coffee. I, I, that doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean let's become best buds and frolic through the woods together. <laughs> Hopefully you guys aren't frolicking much. Anyway, but, but, the, but the point is, right, we're, that is not the implication either. Forgiveness is to... Forgiveness is to wipe the ledger clean. Does that make sense? Right? You have this giant list of all the wrongs done to you, and you just have to wipe it clean. You can start over. It may mean that starting over, that person's not necessarily a friend in your life. Okay? Just don't treat them like they're an enemy, or the ledger isn't clean. Do you, does that make sense? Okay, so, so this is, these are really important things. And guess what? Forgiveness then, so there's just some helps on that. Forgiveness is costly, again, like I said at the outset, because having a full ledger that you can go back to is leverage at times, isn't it? Isn't it? When you bust out this record of wrong, <laughs> you're like, listen, jerk. On January of 2004, <laughs> right? When you pull that out, the challenge that you have is that you're, the, the ledger isn't clean, you haven't washed anything away, and you are just waiting for an opportunity to beat people. This isn't helpful, okay? This isn't helpful. What is costly in forgiveness is that you literally have to wipe that clean, and you should probably just throw it away. You should probably get rid of it. Is that hard? Depends on who, right? Like, you don't know what they've done to me, Nathan. I, I know I don't know what they've done to you. You don't know what we did to our Savior either, and yet he forgave you. Not fully, 
even acknowledges you didn't know what the heck you were doing, <laughs> right? We're literally crucifying the only one who could rescue us. That's what we do. And he's like, I'll forgive you. Can you forgive the people that have hurt you in your life? I would say you can. I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm telling you it's costly. The second piece that we learn in this story is the idea of reconciliation or restoring broken bonds. And this is where forgiveness can result. It can go all the way to a restoration of a brotherhood, of a friendship, of something. Joseph's plan to test his brothers unfolds uh, as he insists that they bring back his youngest brother, Benjamin. And that, again, is a proof of their honesty. The brothers return home. They share their experience with Jacob. And Jacob says, I guess we'll starve because I'm not sending my boy back, right? He is very much protesting this in the moment. He doesn't go to that extreme, but he is very worried about that. But as their supplies dwindle, right, and, and things happen, they have to go back and they have to go back with, uh, with Benjamin. Now, again, remember, Joseph is the guy who... Uh, knows that God is working all things together for his good, knows that what his brothers plan for evil, he's in, God is intending for good, and Joseph is still scheming in this plan. And he still manipulates them in powerful ways that you cannot overlook. Joseph is not Jesus in the story, walking high above all things and playing this game morally perfectly. He's not, Right? He's a man who has pains and struggles and hurts and all of these different things. Now, what was his end? His end may have solely been, I need to check your integrity. His, his ends may have been solely to say, do you love my father, Jacob, more than you loved him with me, in which you will protect my youngest brother? He may be aiming at this. It doesn't change anything, though. The choices that he makes and the tests that he uh, that he gives them is hard. So I am not recommending you copy uh, Joseph's actions here and say, hmm, I'll make sure that that person is warranting uh, forgiveness. I'll just test them very harshly. Pray about that. Think about that before you go into all of this, right? So he orchestrates a feast for his brothers and he blesses Benjamin with an extra portion in the story. This gesture of favoritism, it echoes his father's favoritism towards him, right, with the technicolor target on his back, right? And so it, it serves to uh, another, another way of testing his brother's heart, uh, brother's hearts. Joseph's journey towards forgiveness and reconciliation becomes increasingly evident as he, and I'm using this word intentionally, manipulates circumstances because manipulation is not always bad and it's hard for us to process that. So he manipulates circumstances to reveal the depth of his brother's transformation. You may say, Nathan, I don't see how any form of manipulation uh, can be good. Then read the Bible and find out when God does it and recognize he's morally perfect and he still manipulates circumstances. Yeah, Nathan, but he's God. You can argue that all day long still happens, okay? And so we have to wrestle with this reality. So in these chapters, we encounter this contrast between the brother's concern for Benjamin, and this is what has always stood out to me, the, the contrast between the brother's concern for Benjamin and their past actions towards Joseph. 
when they're faced with the possibility of Benjamin being detained, Judah steps forward, and what does he do? He offers himself as a substitute. But what was Judah doing when Joseph was on the line? He's like, sell him. I don't care about this kid. What I'm pointing out is something has changed. Something has changed over these many years, right? The act reflects a significant transformation in character, uh, especially in that of Judah. So this contrast is, is poignant uh, or a, a poignant reminder of the power of redemption and transformation. While the brothers had once displayed a lack of concern for their father's anguish, who was the father's favorite? Who was the father's favorite? Joseph was the father's favorite. What did they do with the father's favorite? They sold him into slavery and told their dad he was dead. How much care is that for your dad? Not at all. The only thing you cared about was that you were envious and that you were mad at the situation. And so you took the actions into your own hands. But now that we've gone through this character development and everything has shifted, we've got something very, very different going on. Now we have a protection of Benjamin at all costs, specifically because, as stated in the text, this would kill their father. That's an amazing change that has taken place, right? So, this journey from selfishness to a form of selflessness highlights uh, God's transformation through grace inside of people's lives. Even in the midst of a massive mistake, a, a very big wrongdoing. So, as we journey through our lives, I think we should remember that our past mistakes, you've all heard this phrase before, our past mistakes don't define us, right? They don't define us. Sadly, they do. They, they often make every definition of who we are, but they ought not to. Instead, what happens is we should walk by grace. Now, how do I marry that with what I just said before when I said that you will reap what you sow, and sometimes those physical things come back to you, but God ultimately has forgiven you? That what happens to you in this life because of your past actions still doesn't define you. How many of you know that there are people who have murdered people and they are in prison for the rest of their lives, but they've given their life to Jesus and therefore they are children of the Most High? That's a pretty powerful reality, right? Their physical identity is you're a dirtbag and you're unwanted by society, all of those things. But who they are ultimately is not what their past defines, but instead what God has defined in them, right? And this is transformative grace. This is something that is altogether um, amazing, right? Altogether amazing. So just as Joseph orchestrates these moments of testing to bring about redemption, God too orchestrates these events. This is back to this manipulation concept. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, okay? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's, it's an amazing thing, and I, I encourage you to go back through Corinthians, and specifically 2 Corinthians 5, and I want you to read that. I want you to discover, I'm going to let you do it, I want you to discover the context. I want you to ask the question, what is all this is from God? Answer that question for yourself. See what God has brought together or uh, pulled together so that you can, uh, so that we can be reconciled through Jesus Christ. Just, it's powerful. Okay, so we have a restoration of relationships. 
And that is interesting because in this story, what that restoration looks like, in my view, is a restoration of relationship between sons and their father to care for their father the way they ought to have in the beginning, but not the way they chose to with Joseph. Is there anything in the story that indicates that everything is harmony and now we have the Brady Bunch and everybody's skipping around and happy and frolicking, as I said before, in the woods? No, there's nothing that indicates that it's perfect. But there is restoration if you, if you look, right? And that restoration is a restoration of right affection or right care towards another. And so what we have here is we have sons who actually care more for their father now than they did before. That's an amazing restoration. Does Joseph benefit from that? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not really the main point here, right? But what is powerful is that Jacob now has sons that do care for his well-being. They do. They care for what he loves most, which would be Benjamin. They care for this deeply. So I think that that is powerful, and it's a lesson that maybe uh, we can overlook if we're not reading carefully in the text, okay? So third is God's plan, and I titled this Unfolding in Mystery because I don't know about you, but most of the time God's plan is a giant, stinking mystery. So the narrative reaches this climax, this crescendo of reconciliation and forgiveness in Genesis 45 as Joseph reveals his true identity to his very dumbfounded siblings, right? So, and with deep emotion, because he's crying profusely, he reassures them. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, anybody else wonder if that was just a slight dig at the end? As I, would be, I would have a very different motive in saying that, right? I would have been like, it's me, your brother. You know, the one you sold into slavery, right? Like, I, I would make sure it was pronounced, right? <laughs> right? So, but it does, I don't know if that's Jacob's deal, but he still communicates it. And so in this chapter, the concept of God's larger view comes into focus. Joseph's revelation of his identity and his subsequent words to his brothers echo with depth, divine providence. Divine providence, church, does not mean divine determination of every event, right? But it's providence. He acknowledges the plan of their past actions, but he also reveals that there was a greater purpose in all of this. And I think that is where the story gets fascinating. God always has this bigger view in mind, right? So in Genesis 45.5, it says... It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Okay, in the literal, how did Joseph get sent to Egypt? What? Sold into slavery. What does Joseph say happened? God sent him. Man, he's got, he needs to get his eyes examined. Right? Like, <laughs> this is really weird. I don't know how you construe that as God. The point is, he sees the bigger reason for this, okay? Now, here's the age-old wrestle between people that debate free will and determinism. The great wrestle is that if God is planning this, then God must have made those brothers to do that, and then God is culpable for their actions. Now, if that were true, God is culpable, and he's sinful. But guess what? He's not, and so therefore, something else is going on. 
Something has to go on. This is why I think Romans tells us very clearly that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say God is determined to orchestrate every little event so that you can have good, right? But instead, God is working something. Uh, I like the picture of, of us handing God a bunch of mess, and he's like, okay, I can do lots with that. I have plans with all of this, right? So, uh, so what we have is this idea, these words that transcend time, right? It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Um, God's intricate orchestration of events for a purpose beyond our immediate understanding is true of all of us. In the midst of Joseph's trials and the brothers' transgressions, God's, God's sovereign plan, because he's king over things, right, is at work, and he's weaving things together in order to accomplish this higher purpose. The betrayal, the years of separation, the twists of fate are elements that God uses, but God is not making you be a manipulative heard, right? He's not making you be a liar. He's not making you be all these things. This is important for us to understand. Or you will have a framework of God. Here's, here's the best case scenario. You will have a framework of God that when everybody calls out your inconsistency, you will have to claim it's a mystery. Or at worst, you'll have to accept you believe in a morally evil God who just does things, but he can get away with it because he can flash his God card. That's just not good, church. So Joseph's story challenges us to see our personal lives through the lens of a larger, or through God's lens, or a larger view, right? Just as Joseph recognized the divine purpose of his suffering, we're called to trust that God's plan extends far beyond present circumstances. Again, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Did you know that all things means all things? So God is working through the bad stuff too. You like that? I don't like it. I don't want bad stuff. Tough. Bad stuff happens. We live in a sinful world. God is also working through the good things. What most Christians want and what many kind of... uh, uh, Teachers who espouse some sort of uh, prosperity nonsense want to communicate is that God is working only good things for only the good of those who love him. I wish that was the case. But if that was the case, God doesn't do much work because no one's good. (laughs) Right? 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 He's not doing, he can't. He can't. We're all just weird. Right? So what we do see here is that God is working all things. So this is powerful. If you are unfaithful in your money and you get put out of your house and you learn a lesson of care the hard way, God worked that to teach you a lesson the hard way. There you go. If you did everything right, you you did things really well, and God says you can be rewarded, God is working those cool things for your good. And that's beautiful. But God is not like, watch this, I'm going to make Bill lie to Faye so that I can teach Faye a bigger lesson. God would just be culpable in your nonsense story, okay? Please, you can't wiggle your way out of these ideas. The brother's betrayal and Joseph's journey into Egypt 
are all threads of this narrative, and they're designed to save lives during the famine. I like the idea that God gave Joseph a dream. He gave him a dream. That's not the way you're supposed to hear it. But anyway, he he gives him a dream. This dream is that he's going to lead. That leading came with a really chaotic journey, false imprisonment and all this other stuff. That leading also came with an immense amount of work. He's got to serve for seven years saving up stuff so that he can endure through a famine. I don't know. That doesn't sound like an awesome trip for me, right? But that's what he's called him to do, right? God has called him through all this, this, this grand dream, right? And he threads this narrative so that God can have positioned in Egypt his guy. Someone who will trust him in the midst of chaos. Someone who could understand the dream that was given to Pharaoh in that moment. I love that idea. I love that God goes, I'll use you. Just trust me. He does this in many times in the stories of the Bible. He does this in one moment with Queen Esther, right? You guys familiar with this story? What I love about the the Esther story is that it provides this amazing moment where it hits us really hard in which God says this, and this is where we get stuck with people like Judas in the Bible, and I know I'm talking potentially over some people's understanding, I'm sorry, but you've got people like Uh, you've got people like Judas, you've got people like Joseph, you've got people like the Apostle Paul, whatever it is, and people love to say things like, God made it so this person was here at this time in life because without that person, God couldn't move forward, And, and if God didn't orchestrate it that detailed, then what you're saying is God is out of control. This is how This is how far down the rabbit hole people go. But Esther communicates this amazing point of the story in which God says, You have this opportunity to do what I say. And if you don't, I'll find somebody else. You know what's true in every story of the Bible, even if it's not communicated there? And I know this is an argument from silence for those of you who want to push back. But here is the beauty. If God communicates that that is a a truth in a moment, it is equally plausible, if not more plausible, that it's true in every moment that God goes, Abraham, I'm calling you. If you don't move, I'll find another Abraham. Judas, I know what's in your heart. I know how you're going to do this situation. I know how it's going to play out. And if Judas had a change of heart, somebody else would have betrayed Jesus. It turns out none of the 12 seemed to get it right. Right? Zero percent. So the idea here is that God is working all things together. God is not making somebody do weird, obnoxious things. It's just really weird to view it that way. So, In this story, the narrative echoes through this historical narrative echoes, reminding us that our hardships and challenges are always a part of God's grand weaving, right? That's what he's doing. C.S. Lewis once noted, he said, hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. It sounds lovely and worth putting on a t-shirt, but let's deal with the heart of this, right? Just as Joseph's story was marked by hardship, it ultimately led to an extraordinary destiny that preserved life. It brought about reconciliation. I remember watching this TED Talk one time. It was about procrastination, and I would recommend that you watch it. If you want the link, you can send me an email. But there's this procrastination TED Talk in which the guy talks about uh, the panic monster, and he talks about 
uh, something else. Anyway, I'll, I'll send it to you. Anyway, in this, though, there's this moment in the, in the TED Talk where you kind of overlook it. The speaker actually says something super funny. He says that he is the kind of person that always wanted to have given a TED Talk. Okay, now that doesn't make sense to anybody right now, but let me give you the context. He said that he wanted to have given a TED Talk because every one of us wants to sit on the mountaintop. We just don't want to travel up the mountain, right? So he says this and the whole room busts out laughing. He says, I'm the type of person who wants to have given one. I just knew that once I did, it's going to come with panic and chaos and work and all this other stuff, right? This same thing is true of Lewis's statement and our lives. Extraordinary destiny requires hardship. All of us want to have had an extraordinary destiny. We want it. But there's a path for extraordinary destiny. And that path is through Suckville, okay? <laughs> right? so, so we have to go into this. I know people are like, I hate this guy. Anyway, so it's okay. But God's plan, guys, is tricky, and there is no avoiding steps that lead to purpose. This is why there is no way around repentance or turning around and going the other way. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. There's no way around walking into life with Jesus and then him saying, and now I want you to obey all that I've commanded you. You're like, can we just go to heaven part, right, get there? Can we just do that? No, no, we can't just do that, right? We all want this extraordinary destiny or to have had an extraordinary destiny, but we have to go through the hardship or the lessons or the truths that get us there. God's plan is tricky, and there's absolutely no avoiding the steps that lead to his purpose. Just as Joseph forgave his brothers and recognized God's hand in the journey, we can find comfort in knowing that God's plan is transcending our trials, all of the chaos that we're facing. Our lives are woven into the greater story of God. And that gives me peace. That gives me peace. Now, although I know that now, Please work with me here. Although I know that now, and I know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, and I know that God is using all of us to preserve many people alive through the gospel, although I know God is doing that, does that make me happy when everything bad happens to me in my life? No. Are you always happy? No. You know what you have just recognized? A part of the human experience. It's not always good. We're not always happy. Life is not always roses, okay? But we are woven into a grand story, and we need to understand that and embrace that. So here's how we wrap it up. We need to embrace forgiveness. We need to pursue reconciliation. And then we need to trust in God's plan. As we reflect on all of this from Genesis 42 to Genesis 45, the resonating themes, again, of forgiveness, reconciliation, and God's plan should, um, should become very relevant to us, right? Let's internalize Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, 12, right? Just as Joseph chose forgiveness that paved to reconciliation, we're called to the same thing. And you know why we're called to the same thing? Because we've been given forgiveness. We've been given grace. 
Every one of us. Every single one of us. This is why we're called to a form of unity or embrace unity or we're called to heal relationships or to extend any kind of branch of reconciliation. We're supposed to. Does it mean we will be happy walking with that person? No, it does not always mean that. But that's still our call. So amid life's uncertainties, we should find a bit of peace and we can find it in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, What's it say, church? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you actually believe that? If God is for you, the person who hurts you can't ultimately be against you. They, it doesn't work in the end. God still is the writer of all wrongs. If God is for you, nothing you're facing today will take you out. It's okay. You'll make it through. I want to be honest with you, you might make it through by the skin of your teeth, but you will make it through. If God is for you, nothing, church, nothing can be against us. And so we got to stand in awe of God's plan, knowing that every trial, every frustration we step into prepares us for that extraordinary destiny that Lewis pointed out. So I, I hope when you're reading through the text of Scripture that you get, you start to get um, the themes and the beauty of these, of these uh, stories. I, I hope they begin to make your heart excited that God is for you, that God is with you, that even when it doesn't look like it, He's there, that forgiveness is possible, that forgiveness is, is the expectation of, of you in this life. That God is not just wanting you to say you're sorry, but ultimately cares about reconciliation. That's what the brother's story and the father and Joseph all uh, communicate. Hopefully these stories communicate a bigger principle too, and that is God didn't disappear in the story. You should have unwavering trust in God. You should have unwavering trust. Do you always? I don't always, but you should. You know why? Because unlike any human relationship you've ever had, he has never failed you. He's never failed you. Not even for a second, although we think he has, although we picture it that way. He's never failed you. You should have unending trust in him. It is hard. I get it. But you should get back to that. In embracing every truth that we've talked about today, we have to find ourselves in in the best place possible, aligning with God's redemptive story, becoming agents that he has, um, he has given the ministry of reconciliation to uh, so that we can offer to a world grace. We can offer to our neighbor grace. Honestly, we can offer to ourselves grace. I know that sounds strange, but all of this is possible if we'll actually check the story. Amen.